Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. Today, I am excited to welcome Patrick Gaspard, CEO of the Center for American Progress Action Fund. You know how I often ask my guests to nominate someone for my Staffer Hall of Fame? Well, Patrick is one of my nominees. He is the son of Haitian parents who immigrated to New York City when Patrick was three years old. As a teenager, he got deeply involved in opposing South African apartheid. He worked with Jesse Jackson to organize protests of apartheid. And later, while working for Mayor David Dinkins, he organized a city delegation to South Africa to meet with Nelson Mandela. Patrick's activism and organizing led him to a career in politics and government. During this period, Patrick was also connected with a mentor, the legendary political advisor, Bill Lynch, who you will hear Patrick talk about. I'm going to read out some of Patrick's professional chronology. And when you hear this, think about the importance of these figures and institutions in American politics. He worked on Jesse Jackson's 1988 presidential campaign. David Dinkins' successful run for mayor of New York in 1989, becoming the first black man to hold that office. Patrick was Deputy National Field Director for Howard Dean's campaign in 2004, Executive Vice President for Politics and Legislation at SEIU 1199, Political Director for Obama for President in 2008, then he worked in the White House as Political Director. He then was Executive Director of the DNC during President Obama's re-elect in 2012, and afterward was nominated by President Obama to serve as Ambassador to South Africa from 2013 to 2016. Upon returning from overseas, Patrick returned to advocacy, first as president of the Open Society Foundations, and for the last two years as CEO of the Center for American Progress Action Fund. There is much I could say about Patrick and how much I admire him, but instead I will quote Derek Johnson, president and CEO of the NAACP, when the organization awarded Patrick with the Spingard Medal in 2019. The Spingard Medal, for those who are unaware of it, is awarded annually for the highest achievement of a living African-American in the preceding year, and it has been doing so since 1915. Johnson said this, Patrick Gaspard is a global champion for civil and human rights. His contributions to campaigns to end police brutality, improve access to affordable health care, and increase dignity for working families is unparalleled. For over 100 years, we have honored leaders who have served as pillars in the fight for justice, and this year's selection of Patrick Gaspard is no exception. Patrick and I recorded this episode on Monday, August 28th. I hope you enjoy it. Patrick Gaspard, welcome to Staffer. Jim, thanks so very much for having me on. I am so excited to have you on today's show. Um, As you may know, I like to start uh, these interviews by asking people about their families. And I read an article in which you said all of your interest in politics comes from the origin story of your family. So can you tell me about that origin? So, you know, I I love the the use of the phrase origin story as a comic book aficionado. That's like a really (laughs) important thing for me. So, so my, I, I, um, I was... I was born in the Congo uh, of parents of Haitian descent. My, um, uh, my, my family had to, my parents had to leave Haiti uh, in the 1960s, difficult uh, moment when the Juvaye regime uh, was in power, uh, incredibly oppressive government. Uh, and uh, my father and many, many other Haitian intellectuals and activists um, uh, who were engaged in the work of, uh, you know, speak it out uh, on democracy, freedom, those little things in that time uh, were imperiled. It coincided with a moment when uh, Patrice Lumumba had come into power in the Congo. Uh, the Fre- French and Belgian uh, educators had left the country uh, and there was this real deficit. Uh, and so uh, the Congolese, Lumumba, put out a call for French-speaking educators uh, from throughout uh, the diaspora to come to the continent to teach the next generation of leaders. Uh, And my father and many others uh, went uh, to the Congo, uh, and he spent a chunk of the the 60s there. Uh, My mother eventually joined him, and I happened. (laughs) And uh, uh, eventually, our entire family 
um, uh, moved uh, to the United States. Uh, I grew up in New York with my six siblings, uh, so many cousins, uh, and my parents who did every kind of work possible in the U.S. to keep the lights on, keep us in school, uh, make sure that we had a, an opportunity to get a fair shake uh, in this society. Uh, and through it, through it all, uh, both my parents, my, my father and uh, my mother, always showed a kind of uh, unswerving commitment to the, the notion of community, uh, the notion of fairness uh, and a sense uh, that one had to really work hard to kind of like own your citizenship. Uh, it was true uh, in Haiti, uh, certainly true uh, here uh, in the United States. So all of my early work, first around Haitian diaspora issues, around uh, anti-apartheid uh, issues, uh, and then uh, on local stuff, on education, school board races, healthcare, uh, eventually becoming uh, an activist and organizer in uh, with Service Employees International Union, Local 1199, all of that was informed by uh, that history uh, in a sense uh, that um, uh, you had to put your shoulder uh, to the wheel of democracy. And so there it is. Well, as you say, it started early for you. Um, and I don't know whether this was the, the, the first time you really put your shoulder into activism, as you described. But when you were 19, Congress overrode President Reagan's veto of sanctions against the South African white minority government. And you have described that as a pivotal moment for you and, and your view of collective action. So can you talk about what you did around fighting apartheid and what lessons you learned about organizing? Jim, there is nothing worse uh, than um, being part of a grand success uh, at the beginning of your organizing because you think that's how it's always supposed to be. Uh, and it gets you addicted and hooked uh, to... Uh, this notion that one person can make a real contribution to a movement uh, and that a movement can make a difference uh, in history. So um, when I was in uh, my teens, it was the kind of like the absolute height uh, of the movement against racial oppression in South Africa. I know that uh, folks uh, under the age of 35 have a hard time understanding this, but it was actually possible to build and sustain large scale, not just national movements, but global movements before we had Facebook and Twitter and all these things. Before we had social media, we had mimeograph yeah. machines, we had our bullhorns, we had our voices, we had uh, our sense of uh, our place in history uh, and an insistence that one had to lift up some real scaffolding around our values. So. You know, I would um, uh, gleefully uh, spend time uh, with uh, in demonstrations instead of in the classroom, uh, shouting uh, folks down who were representing the apartheid regime or our own government uh, that happened to be on the wrong side of history uh, in that moment, uh, joining demonstrations and groups that were participating in civil disobedience. Uh, and um, there was a sense that because the most powerful person in the world, Ronald Reagan, was against sanctions in South Africa, that it couldn't happen. But somehow uh, we managed to get uh, bicameral and bipartisan uh, support uh, for those sanctions, got them passed, uh, and then overrode uh, Ronald Reagan's veto pen. It, for me, it was a kind of like singular um, lightning bolt moment uh, that said uh, that the work matters. Uh, that um, average uh, citizens can do extraordinary uh, things uh, and that um, uh, history uh, could ultimately be shaped uh, to be uh, on uh, the side of those who have been uh, most vulnerable to the winds of history. So like that moment for me just kind of like just made, made it clear uh, all that was uh, possible into the future. Uh, and much of that still animates uh, my efforts today as the president of uh, the Center for American Progress. It it really was such a landmark uh, moment and obviously has reverberations through today um, around the world for having that success. While you were uh, engaged in that activism and organizing, I know you also um, uh, connected with Jesse Jackson 
and I believe in this period of your life, uh, David Dinkins as well. But there's somebody else that I want to ask you about first because we're going to get to those two. Um, and that is someone named Bill Lynch, yeah. who was a legendary uh, uh, political consultant and advisor. The Rumpel uh, Genius. The Rumpel Genius, <laughs> as he was called. He passed away in 2013. You were one of the people asked to speak at his funeral. For those who don't know Bill Lynch, could you tell us about him and what he meant to you? So thanks for that. Thanks for that question, Jim. Uh, you, you you can't have come up through the ranks of activism or um, electoral politics uh, in New York in my era, uh, my generation, uh, and the generation right before mine, right after mine. Like you know, you kind of bridged uh, the three of the three of them. You, you can't have come through it all in New York without uh, having uh, gone through the door of uh, William Lynch, who was a uh, you know, I, th- I think of I think of Bill less as a political operative and more as a like a jazz musician. He was like an artist. Everything with Bill was uh, improvised at the highest levels, and you know, you would kind of you know go through these circuitous paths and and then appreciate that he always had a plan from uh, beginning to end. He he grew up a uh, very modest uh, uh, place uh, in out in Mattituck in Long Island back when that was just a patch of uh, potato farms. Uh, and started uh, becoming active in the, the NAACP and the union movement uh, out on the island, uh, and that then spread across New York City and uh, New York State. Uh, he eventually got involved in uh, uh, national efforts and campaigns, first through local efforts that just kind of escalated to rights and justice and economic advancement uh, movements. Uh, he's somebody who went from uh, the modesty of the potato farms in Mattituck to serving as an advisor uh, to Nelson Mandela immediately uh, upon Nelson Mandela's release uh, and as he ascended to become the first black president of that nation. Uh, so uh, he's somebody who who worked at the intersection of uh, po- politics uh, and rough and tumble, uh, smoke-filled rooms uh, and public pol- transparent, accountable public policy making uh, and movement building. And, you know, you, you asked me about Jesse Jackson and, and David Dinkins. Um, David, uh, Bill Lynch was like the, the fulcrum uh, of, of all of that. There's like a whole host of folks who came up uh, in those spaces uh, who were uh, invited in uh, by Bill uh, or who got to know Bill then and made their way up the ladder because of his advice, his counsel, and his mentorship. And here's the thing about mentorship, and you know, it's great. the reason why I was so excited to join your podcast is because one, it's you, and you're, you're, you would be, we'd have a great conversation, uh, and two, um, because you are focused on uh, staffers and the role of staffers, and it's, that's really important to me. But I will say that with Bill, mentorship was something that um, happened in the course of access. Right? Bill was somebody who who appreciated that. Um, you didn't have to have a uh, PhD uh, in rocket science in order to maybe have a really good idea uh, that that could and should be heard uh, at the tables of power. So Bill gave radical access to everybody from you know uh, CEO of an organization right on down to the interns uh, who worked with us first in the Manhattan Borough President's Office, where I started myself as an intern, uh, and then eventually in New York City Hall. He continued to be that way with New York State uh, Party, with the Democratic National uh, Committee when we were engaged in rules changing at the the national level. Uh, And every space that he walked in, there was this kind of like uh, sense of a radical open door, uh, a notion that there was no such thing as a bad and dumb question um, uh, and, uh, and there was always a sense around Bill of a meritocracy, that if you worked really, really hard, and if you, on occasion, let him put his foot up your butt, because he, he could be a little tough, um, <laughs> and if you lived to tell the tale, uh, there'd be an opportunity for you on, on the other side. And so for me, you know, you could, there, there are, there are lo- loads of, you know, uh, Harvard Business School manuals on what it means to be a good mentor and a good staff leader, et cetera. But at the end of the day, uh, for me, it begins with it begins and ends with this with this notion of radical access uh, that Bill exemplified. 
I love that because, you know, when often when I talk or think about mentorship, it, you know, to distill it, it it's, you know, advice, concern, you know, someone looking out for you. But the concept of, of access is so bound up with mentorship because when we think on those people who really meant something, they often invited us to have a seat at a table before we thought we were ready. The, um, that, that's, uh, that's exactly right, uh, Jim. That's a perfect encapsulation of what it means. Uh, a, a really good mentor, uh, when you reflect back on your experience with them, you, you recognize that um, th- they understood something about you, they saw something in you that you yourself did not understand or recognize uh, at the time. Uh, I mentioned before that that uh, Bill Lynch could be kind of tough uh, on young staffers uh, as well, and uh, but you know it was like a teddy bear uh, kind of toughness. Uh, but you know when you when you went through it, you realize, oh, okay, so he's being tough on me because he wants me to have intellectual curiosity about what we're doing. He doesn't want me to just kind of like be focused on the task uh, that's in front of me. He wants me to understand the context of that task. Uh, to ask bigger questions of the people uh, around me uh, and to show up uh, not with uh, the best answers all the time, uh, but with the most uh, poignant uh, set of questions. Uh, and that's you know, why I took away from, from that experience. Yeah. So um, I said I would return uh, to Jesse Jackson and, and to Mayor Dinkins. Um, I know you worked on, uh, on Jesse Jackson's 1988 puzzle. Presidential campaign, but what did you do on that campaign? Oh, I was a I was a kid. I was a grunt. I did whatever Bill Lynch told me to do. <laughs> Bill, okay. Bill, Bill was was helping to uh, lead the effort, uh, as was uh, Dennis Rivera, who was the you know the then um, ascendant leader in uh, 1199 CIU and one of the most dynamic labor leaders in the country. Uh, and there was a sense uh, that we were kind of charging the barricades, right? None of us really, you know, we, we were not, um, uh, there were many people on that effort, both uh, in that year in 1989 around Dinkins, who had come up through party machinery. But for the most part, uh, those those projects were, um, the, the, the common dynamic in those projects is that they were like starter, like, like starters, like, um, uh, starter ups, uh, where you're just kind of making it up as you go along. Uh, there was a sense that um, people were ready to give up important things in their lives to volunteer for the effort. So you were obligated to make sure that you were taking full and good advantage of the time that they were offering. Uh, so even being around volunteers in the uh, 88 effort, um, People were giving of themselves as if it was a full-time job uh, for them because mm-hmm. it was much, much bigger than supporting a candidate, right? This was uh, about trying to um, make an investment uh, in the lives of your your neighbor, your child, your grandchild. Um, uh, and so it was a you know, pretty big deal. Uh, I remember yeah. in um, the uh, 1989 campaign working with a group of African-American uh, senior citizens in up, upper Manhattan who were going door to door for David Dinkins, just as they had gone door to door and across state lines to Pennsylvania, et cetera, the year before for Jackson. Uh, and these were folks who were, you know, in their late 70s, uh, who were climbing up the stairs, who were, you know, in, in 90 degree weather going and, and pushing uh, the flyer uh, and making the case. Uh, and if you were around them, it was kind of uh, infectious uh, and it filled you uh, with a sense of, uh, again, what it meant to be part of something much bigger uh, than your uh, than yourself. So for me, when I think about that time, Jim, I think less about the task I was given, which I, you know, which don't even mean anything now. It was more about um, what was being imparted uh, to me um, uh, by uh, these extraordinary citizens. Remember a conversation that I had with um, the late, great Harry Belafonte when I, when I asked him once about all this period, because he was involved and engaged in all of those efforts, I asked him uh, what it was like to make sacrifices uh, for these movements. And he got really upset at me. And he, and he said, you're thinking about it 
the wrong way. This is not a sacrifice uh, at all. This is um, a privilege. Like we have a we have a privilege here uh, to uh, that we've been given this opportunity to make lives better, to make our nation better, to make the world better. You're not sacrificing anything. Something something is being given to your spirit and your soul that you have the privilege to participate in this. Uh, never forget that it was like you know it was a, it was a proper scolding. <laughs> so when I think about all of that time, uh, it was just uh, one big privilege, Jim. Yeah. Well, you you know rose to the absolute heights of of New York City politics, and not just you know the likes of of Harry Belafonte and Jesse Jackson and and Mayor Dinkins. Um, Al Sharpton once referred to you as one of the movement's uh, greatest organizers. And, you know, to your point, you know, social causes take organizing. The labor community takes organizing, political movements. Um, but what makes a good organizer? Like, you know, folks, you know, even when they are infused with mission, they still have to be organized by, yeah. by people. So what makes a good organizer? Well, that's, um, you know, th- that was an extraordinary kind and generous thing that, that Reverend Sharpton said about me. I don't know if it's true, but I, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll embrace it for the purpose of this conversation. So I, um, I'd, I'd say this, Jim. First, uh, one has to be able to understand and make a distinction between what it means to be an organizer and what it means to be an activist. Uh, an activist is someone who, um, for me, uh, has a talent uh, for stirring up the chorus uh, for, you know, working with folk who are already like-minded, uh, who uh, share purpose, uh, and who are trying to be then activated uh, towards um, delivery uh, of the thing that they that they have consensus on. Um, uh, whereas an organizer uh, is steeped in the space of persuasion. Uh, I think a great organizer mm-hmm. um, has to be first and foremost uh, a really good uh, and intentional listener, uh, someone who has the, uh, uh, the the humility to park their ego at the door, uh, to kind of uh, understand the challenges that people uh, have in their lives uh, and their perspectives and point of view, uh, even as you are trying to work to orient them to the thing the, that you have a commitment to. Uh, I, I had um, this, this, this conversation with... Uh, uh, with someone uh, during the Build Back Better uh, fight, the Build Back Better bill uh, by an agenda that eventually became the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, and I talked about the example that I saw in front of me in West Virginia of a lot of folks from lots of places who were going into West Virginia to try to convince a particular senator uh, to vote a certain way uh, on uh, that bill. Uh, and they were protesting uh, at uh, this person's yacht uh, and uh, at uh, his home. And I kind of compared it to my first experiences in West Virginia, where I was going door to door with other West Virginians, uh, having a conversation about um, uh, the future of the country, uh, issues like education and healthcare, and trying to understand at the doors how folks felt about those issues and whether or not in the, the, the Venn diagram of the universe, uh, if there were some places uh, where uh, we had some alignment, uh, and then to kind of invest in those spaces of, of alignment in ways that um, could make me uncomfortable or make them uncomfortable uh, to figure out if there was a way to build coalition uh, and partnership uh, to make change. Uh, change... Uh, Policy change, political change, uh, cultural narrative change uh, is something that with rare instances in history uh, always happens uh, over a long arc. Uh, it is a you know slow going, sl- uh, just grind. Uh, and to be an effective organizer, uh, you have to have the temperament to, to endure the grind. You have to have the stamina uh, and endurance of a marathoner. Uh, and you have to um, uh, appreciate uh, that uh, listenership uh, is uh, oftentimes much more important uh, than the ability to broadcast. Yeah. I can see why President Obama wanted you uh, to be one of his 
key diplomats, hmm. um, which Thank we're going to get to. Thank you, um, but I, I, I also want to, I want to ask you about uh, SEIU 1199, which y- you've referenced. Um, for those who are unaware, uh, it is a giant in uh, in democratic politics, not just in New York, but nationally. Um, it is such a, an important union for its members. Um, you took on a very senior role there running its political and policy shop. You were there for about a decade. And prior to that, you'd worked for political candidates and elected officials. How was working for a union and its membership different? Oh, my God, it's the best thing in the world. So work, working for that union in that era uh, every single day, uh, I felt like um, uh, a kid in Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. It was just like this abundance of riches. Uh, and the riches were uh, the cause uh, that you were fighting for, but more importantly, the people that you were fighting with. Uh, 1199, uh, when I came into the organization, was a good deal smaller uh, than it is now, uh, but still had uh, as its kind of animating energy, um, mostly women uh, of color who were uh, working in the healthcare field, uh, who were uh, receiving low wages, hardly any benefits, no real compensation uh, and dignity uh, for providing frontline care work uh, to those uh, who needed. They couldn't even take care of their own families with the wages that they were making. Uh, they were in the hospital system, in nursing homes, uh, in uh, uh, and in um, uh, home health aides, home home care. Uh, they they still are. Uh, they continue to grow uh, and expand across multiple uh, states now. The far and away the largest local uh, in SEIU International. What made that place uh, so special for me was their um, commitment to community unionism. Uh, the leadership of that organization, the delegates and activists of 1199 understood uh, that they had a central role and responsibility uh, in the lives of their membership that, well, that went well beyond the collective bargaining table. Um, 1199 is, is affectionately known as Dr. King's favorite union. Uh, Dr. King oh. famously came uh, before 1199 several times he did, uh, and uh, referred to, to them as his uh, favorite union uh, and, and showed up so often uh, that um, uh, there, was a, there was a sense of like deep uh, connection there. And that's because from its earliest stages to now, uh, 1199 thinks of itself as part uh, of the civil rights community, the human rights uh, fabric. Uh, 1199 uh, will contribute uh, both in people power uh, and in uh, its resources uh, to education campaigns, to, to of course, healthcare battles, uh, but also to fights on um, community policing and economic uh, justice. Uh, I first got to know 1199 Jim uh, through activism in the Haitian American community. Uh, if we, if, if uh, uh, you know, if there was some tyrant. Uh, showing up uh, at the United Nations to give a speech and the local diaspora community would show up to protest or demonstrate them against them. Uh, invariably, it was 1199 that was providing the soundstage, the equipment, the marshals for the, 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 the rally. Uh, whenever I was engaged in um, demonstrations against police brutality, it was 1199 activists who were out there on the streets with you sounding uh, the alarm, demanding uh, change, uh, and then using uh, its uh, advocacy might, uh, not just to uh, make a set of ask of governors and state reps uh, on their contract needs, uh, but would instead use all of that uh, to leverage it in the space uh, of rights uh, and justice. So uh, greatest time uh, in the world. I learned everything that I need to know uh, about politics, about organizing, uh, and about the work of extending and building dignity uh, from the women uh, and men, the brothers and sisters of 1199. What is something about democratic um, elite? Um, I'm using that in quotes, elite, but like Democrats in Washington who maybe haven't had experience working in unions or worked in politics a long time, but not worked in unions that they should understand or would understand if they had the opportunity that you've had. So I, I actually think that um, 
the only reason why I've been fortunate enough to understand uh, the difference between winning and losing effort. Like I, 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 I feel as if I have this, um, uh, this gift to identify from a mile away uh, an effort that uh, a campaign that can win and a campaign that uh, that is dead on arrival, whether it's a political uh, electoral campaign or an issue uh, campaign. And I'm always making that judgment through the prism of uh, how close uh, to the grassroots the idea is, uh, the um, the infrastructure uh, for uh, the campaign is. When uh, when when I you know talk to a lot of my friends in Washington D.C. who who talk about their organizing or use the term organizing, uh, invariably I'll find out uh, that they're really just. Uh, having conversations within the echo chamber of other elite spaces uh, that are in D.C. or D.C. adjacent, uh, and that um, the campaign itself uh, is not organic, doesn't have this indigenous uh, element uh, that uh, would orient it around uh, the progressive pragmatism uh, of most uh, folk uh, in community who... Uh, always have a North Star in mind, uh, but are excited uh, to celebrate the gains that they're able to make uh, day uh, to day. Uh, and um, they're the kind of folk that will sustain a movement uh, through a series of tough headlines, right? And, you know, there are, there are so many efforts, campaign efforts, legislative efforts, uh, they can't survive uh, difficult moments, uh, moments of uh, failure. But if those uh, movements uh, and those campaigns start uh, with some uh, kind of uh, indigenous core, uh, mm -hmm. then they can ride through the wave uh, of those storms. So th that's often for me the disconnect uh, that I'll that I'll see uh, around a, a legislative effort, a policy fight, uh, or an electoral campaign that just has this kind of um, deep connectivity. Uh, or astounding disconnect, and you just know, all right, this one's going to make it, and this one, this dog can't hunt. Yes. Oh, that is just so well put. Um, okay, so let's talk about one of the one of the uh, famous campaigns you worked on. Uh, you became political director to President Obama's 2008 campaign. That actually At happened. Yeah, I was going to say, he had to really work for it. <laughs> so the, I mean, this story is well known and has been written about, but... He recruited you for a long time before you said yes. So what was going on that, that made you, you know, turn him down for, for such a long period when very few people would be able to do that? I'm, I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed just hearing that out loud that you turned down Barack <laughs> Obama. It's like, how, how dumb are you? <laughs> so so it's, um, uh, let, let's, let's be clear. Uh, I was always in his corner uh, and supportive and doing whatever I could uh, from his uh extraordinary uh, Senate run uh, that had a lot of good luck uh, on its side uh, in 2006. Uh, it's doing trainings uh, for his hope fund uh, uh, after the, in the, you know, in the interim between 2006 and 2008 uh, to being one of those people who um, was making a little bit of trouble in the world. And despite the fact that um, I was uh, from New York and Hillary Clinton uh, who, had ha who I had a, a, a great relationship with, was my hometown uh, senator. Uh, I was one of those people agitating for Barack Obama to, to run. I thought that he was a, you know, once in a century political talent um, <coughs> who had the right set of values, was in it for all the right reasons. And the very first time I met him, I knew this is, this is going to be the guy uh, someday. So I want to be clear, I was always at his camp. <laughs> but at the moment that he asked me to join uh, his, his campaign, I was in the middle of uh, standing up uh, an effort for SEIU, running the kind of boiler room uh, on uh, the CHIPS campaign to expand access to uh, health care <coughs> for women and children, uh, vulnerable populations. And I had two young kids uh, of my own at the time uh, who I felt I needed to be around uh, instead of running around uh, to to you know primary states and, and caucus states. Uh, but... Uh, one day he did corner me, uh, invited me to uh, his office, and I thought that maybe we were going to be talking about the healthcare campaign. Uh, and instead, he was like, Gaspard, so why haven't you said yes yet? Uh, and uh, um, uh, when I told him my reasons, he laughed at me, mocked me openly, and he said, look, if you come and work on my campaign, we'll get 
national healthcare done a lot faster uh, than you and your little uh, friends will with your little organizing <laughs> on the side. <laughs> and um, the day that I'm elected president and I put my hands uh, on uh, the Lincoln Bible uh, on Capitol Hill, steps that were built uh, with slave labor, the day I put my hand on, uh, up, up there and take that oath of office, the lives of your two children uh, will be appreciably more improved uh, than if you go to every single one of their soccer games uh, over uh, the next uh, you know, two dozen weekends. He had me. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, and then working on that campaign, again, was just an extraordinary uh, privilege. People who were just giving up everything to, you know, dropping out of uh, school, giving up work, driving uh, across the country because... Uh, not for Barack Obama, but for themselves and their community. They were able to locate themselves uh, and their aspirations uh, in the things that they were hearing and seeing uh, of of him, from him, and, and around him. Uh, and that was a great thing to, to be a part of. I, I will tell you, I'll never forget going door to door with a, with a woman in um, uh, North Carolina who... Um, uh, was volunteering on the campaign. Uh, she was suffering from brain cancer, uh, and she was clear that she didn't have, oh, you know, a lot, a lot of time left on the, this earth. Uh, and she was going door to door and telling me and many others uh, that she was doing it uh, because she wanted to make sure that other people in the country didn't have to suffer the way she did from lack of access to health care. So, you know, folks like that who you meet uh, on uh, the trail just kind of stay with you if you're um, if you're in this work for all the right reasons. You never forget uh, people like that and their stories, and you try during your 16-hour days uh, to not um, lose yourself either in the heights of the elite access that you have, or in the lows of you know the thing that you're getting pummeled by in the press at that moment. And uh, you try to stay locked in. Uh, on that woman's commitment uh, to her community, her country, uh, and this notion of not leaving anybody behind. That's what, that's what I love about that campaign and about all campaigns in general. Yeah. Oh, so powerful. You know, when you were talking about Bill Lynch, you described him as a fulcrum uh, in New York City politics, and he was very much a thread. But when you step back and look at your career as well, worked on Jesse Jackson's 88th campaign, which after Biden was elected, I read a, a really interesting article saying it was actually the rainbow coalition <laughs> that Jesse Jackson built during his presidential runs. That is today the coalition that elected Joe Biden. You helped elect David Dick Dinkins to be the first black mayor of New York City. You helped elect Barack Obama to be the first black president of the United States. Do you step back and reflect, how do you reflect on, on your contribution to really significant moments in American history? You know, Jim, I, I, um, I, I really appreciate the spirit of that uh, question, and I don't want to seem as if I'm rejecting it uh, at all, but um, there's a thing that you mentioned Bill Lynch. I, I get this from not just Bill Lynch, but people like Hazel Dukes, uh, who is the NAACP um, uh, state chair in New York, longtime uh, rights activist uh, who recently won the Spring Garden Award uh, from the NAACP. Extraordinary woman who reminded me every single day that you should never rest on your laurels, uh, that um, there's always a there's always a bigger fight ahead uh, and that we are we are so far away from uh, the North Star that we uh, hope uh, to be able to uh, you know, kind of uh, touch uh, at some point. Uh, so it's really important uh, that you immediately uh, consider the next opportunity uh, and whether or not the Overton window uh, has uh, been thrown open wide enough uh, for uh, to let to let others in. Uh, and so it's really, I, I um, I don't spend a lot of time. Um, at all, uh, looking backwards, uh, I, I, re I really, I, I feel as if I, uh, I can't. Sometimes, I, yeah, my um, uh, one of my siblings, my my youngest sister, gives me a hard time about this because you know something extraordinary will happen 
uh, that I'm that I happen to be in the room for, uh, and that I made some modest contribution to. And she says things like, "Bring me there. What happened?" And I'm like, "I've moved on. Like I, I don't know if it, it's not even a thing." It's the, you know, Bill, Bill and she used to always say to us when we were in tough fights, uh, and whether or not we were. Uh, feeling just kind of down and out about something or if we were like getting high on something we accomplished he would look at he would deadpan and he would say next case it's like let's move on let's keep building so you know there's a there's a less next case element for me jim but 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 i'll tell you one quick anecdote that for me um hit me hard on just this notion of kind of like being a zealot uh, in uh, the movement and being in a, in, in, in a space and you're thinking, how, how am I here? And more importantly, how did this happen? I remember uh, a couple of weeks out from election day uh, in 2008, um, at this point, it's pretty clear that we're going to win. You know, um, John McCain has picked Sarah Palin and that, and that lead balloon came crashing down. McCain had already made his infamous statement that uh, the fundamentals of our economy were sound, and most Americans were like, "Say what?" <laughs> so all that was going on, and it's pretty clear we're going to win. So I think we're about two weeks out from election day, and the crowds are getting bigger and bigger. Uh, and I traveled uh, with the candidate, then Senator uh, Obama, uh, to St. Louis, Missouri, uh, where he was going to give a speech on the plaza. And I'm just exhausted. I don't know how many cities we had been in and how many days. Uh, and I go out, uh, he goes out on the stage and I like kind of peer out over the stage and I see 100,000 people in the plaza, white, black, brown, yellow, every age, uh, you know, uh, it was America out there. Uh, and I see this black man addressing them and I'm looking out over his shoulder and I can see in the distance the golden dome of the St. Louis uh, courthouse. Uh, and being a geek of history, uh, I know... Uh, that that's where the Dred Scott case had been decided 150 years before, 150 yards away from us, uh, where, you know, uh, our fundamental citizenship uh, and humanity had been denied. And here was this guy talking to a literal cross-section of Americans who were um, lifting him and us uh, into, uh, into a future. Uh, it was a future that we still had to work really hard to earn the the virtues of the fruits of. But my God, it, it was it was there in that space, and here I was. And so that was a moment that uh, uh, I reflect on sometimes and say, can't believe that I got to be a part of all of that. But um, you know, how am I going to use uh, the sensation of that moment? Uh, to make sure that right now at the Center for American Progress and do all I can uh, on uh, the f- reforms that we're going to need, the additional access that we need at a time when um, there's a fragility, a precarity uh, to uh, our uh, small d democratic norms, not just in the U.S., but uh, across the world, uh, when candidly we're going into a political contest uh, next year. Uh, that um, has a hint of the existential uh, to it uh, because of all that's at stake as we go forward, but also because of uh, recent occurrences uh, that uh, shock you out of your complacency. Uh, You know, book bannings and the abortion ban and uh, the kind of fundamental uh, shocking cruelty uh, that's visited upon young people who are, are just trying to uh, again, locate themselves uh, in the democracy. So um, anything about uh, the past is just fuel uh, for all of that. I, I don't like to sit in it for, for too long. <laughs> I, I feel like I'm playing the role of your sister in this conversation. <laughs> um, but since you, you you mentioned Center for American Progress, um, which is really just one of the powerhouses um, in the progressive thought leadership space. And and I shouldn't just say thought leadership. It, it prides itself, as I understand, being a think and do tank. And you know, as you described, the issues that we are facing right now as a country really, I think, do seem dire because they are, in some cases, dire. And the organization you lead today is filled with talented people, many of whom have been staffers, you know, and those who haven't yet been may very well likely be staffers in the future. How do you keep the organization and each individual, you know, um, 
not committed because that, that they showed up committed on day one, but keeping that optimism. Because I know I find myself at times, you know, I, I can get pessimistic or dark about the future. And, I, and it takes work to say, no, it's, you know, we got to keep up, keep up yes. the fight another yes. day. So how do you do that? You know, what, that's, a, that's such a fantastic question, Jim. And I, I'm glad that you kind of like brought this back to uh, the notion of staffing. You, you asked me about my roles in all these uh, places. And before I answer the question, I just want to just quickly uh, add um, uh, that, I, that I was really, really, um, really lucky uh, in all the places that I, that, I, uh, that I worked. I was recruited into uh, efforts uh, that were led really well, led thoughtfully, uh, and where there was a, an opportunity to um, uh, advance uh, if you had the the right spirit and level of commitment to, to the work, not everyone gets those opportunities. I also uh, will, you know, shout out a lot of my um, the, the people who I directly reported to on those efforts. There were incredible women, mostly women, uh, every step of the way, who also provided a lot of guidance uh, to me. Women at eleven ninety nine, women on campaigns, people like uh, Mignon Moore, who comes out of the uh, the, the the Jackson um, uh, movement, uh, uh, folk who uh, worked with me um, in City Hall, in the White House, uh, on uh, the front line of of, dem- of demonstrations, um, who uh, were just like phenomenal leaders, guiders, supporters, uh, and people who knew how to hold you accountable uh, with real specificity uh, to the things that you yourself uh, believed in. So. Just really wanted to to add that plug. Now, as it relates to this moment and maintaining uh, optimism, one of the things that I'm very clear about in uh, the work that that I'm blessed to be able to lead at CAP is uh, the need to make sure that in all of it, we're suffusing a sense of history throughout our efforts. If we're working on climate change, on LGBTQ uh, issues, on the assault uh, against um, uh, education uh, in 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 our country now, and the much needed reforms in the space of justice. Any of those uh, issues, uh, I always like to bring in the comparative of history uh, to remind myself uh, and those I'm working with uh, that there are people who have done much harder things on the very same issues, uh, who have you know given us uh, the opportunity to like, hold the baton and push it forward. Uh, if you're organizing, if you're legislating, uh, if you're preaching <laughs> without a sense of history, uh, you will fall into despair uh, at the first instance uh, of a setback because uh, you just don't aren't understanding uh, that arc. Uh, when you ask me about um, uh, optimism, when you ask me about organizing, uh, in my mind, I'm always going back to historic figures that people don't really know much about because uh, they're uh, unsung, and if Ron DeSantis has his way, they'll be erased uh, from our history books. Uh, I think about people like uh, Bob Moses, not the Bob Moses of not the Bob Moses, the builder of New, of New York infamy, you know, but Bob Moses of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, who was um, a quiet person, very much an introvert, uh, but uh, without whose um, uh, loud empathy. Uh, we would not have been uh, successful in bending the arc in places like Mississippi and Georgia and Alabama, where uh, not only was he himself uh, in danger, uh, but he had to convince young people like Schroeder, Goodman, and Cheney to put themselves on the front line uh, as well uh, to go and fight for rights. And when they lost their lives, he then had to convince thousands of other young people to continue the fight. Uh, and to maintain the gaze uh, of justice uh, in uh, this country, in the darkest places in this country, uh, and to do it in a way that didn't celebrate and overpromote the self, uh, but kept uh, those you were fighting for uh, at the fore. So the example of Bob Moses always rings out uh, for me uh, when I'm thinking about the kinds of things that we need to be doing today to protect and promote and preserve multiracial pluralistic uh, democracy uh, in America. Uh, And I hope uh, that to all of my staffers, uh, from interns to executives to some of our partners, 
uh, I'm able to uh, impart that sense of optimism uh, that comes from uh, those examples of those lessons uh, of uh, prior achievement uh, through much uh, tougher um, uh, journeys uh, that should kind of spur us on. Patrick, a question I like to ask my guests is, uh, is there a time you made a mistake? Uh, and what was it and what you learned from it? So that's a fantastic question, Jim. And I, here's the truth. I can't think of a time where <laughs> I didn't make tons and tons of mistakes. There's um, a, a phenomenal a woman named Betty Shabazz, who, you know, also known as the widow of Malcolm X, who I was privileged to get to know when she was leading uh, in Megra Everest College uh, in Brooklyn, uh, traveled uh, to South Africa with her when I was really young. Uh, and I'll, I, I'll, I'll botch how she said it to me, but in you know, a conversation with me and some other young people way back in the day, uh, she told us that we uh, had to understand th that it was important uh, to kind of fail greatly uh, and that uh, it's, gonna, it's okay to make mistakes, uh, but that there's an ownership that we had to take over our mistakes, be accountable to them, but not be paralyzed by them and to like build courage uh, from the act of uh, the uh, error itself uh, and to go and to continue to dare to fail greatly. Uh, so I won't give you a specific instance of a failure by me because they happen every single day. Uh, I, I, um, uh, you know, I worry sometimes in the social media age that we live in with LinkedIn and Wikipedia, uh, the young people will go on the page of someone uh, like myself uh, and they'll see all the great places that, I, that I've been fortunate enough uh, to be in uh, and they assume, man, wow, this person did everything the right way or, you know, just hits home run after home run. And they're not seeing in the Wikipedia entry all of the strikeouts uh, that, uh, uh, that I had uh, along uh, the way, which are many uh, and uh, countless uh, from personal, simple, little errors that you make. You can't believe you made in the administration of a thing to huge, massive uh, errors of expenditures on, on, a, on, a, on a political campaign uh, that has real consequences. Uh, but the ability to say, you know what, that was my mistake, uh, to own it, uh, to name it, and then not to dwell in it and be paralyzed by it, but to dare, dare to move on to the next hard thing to do uh, is the essence of good and effective uh, staffing. Uh, and I like to think uh, uh, what's essential uh, for good leadership as well. Brilliant. I love that. Patrick, um, that is a, a perfect ending um, to our conversation today. Um, I could talk to you literally all day. Um, there are so many uh, things I, I'd like to ask you about. Um, let me just end by saying thank you uh, for what you do, for what you've done, um, for being so committed to this country's betterment. Um, as a citizen, um, it, I, I find it inspirational, and I'm and I'm deeply appreciative. Thank and you so again, much. Thank you so thank much, you. Jim. I'm, I'm inspired by your work, your history, your effective staffing, uh, and the voice uh, that you're giving to so many now. So, appreciate you. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all. Thanks all.